Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Pastor's been on vacation, and we, we just couldn't ask him to preach today because who, who needs to study on their vacation, right? <laughs> That's work for the pastor. So uh, the Lord's given me the opportunity to preach his word. Verse 1, let's begin reading. <clears throat> and I'm actually going to read through the chapter into verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, to a Hebrew audience, that's quite a statement. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, And said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there be not, that there be in, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. 
Let's pray. Father, we need your help today. We come in Jesus' name, asking that you might quiet our hearts, Lord, and help us to take every thought captive now to the obedience of Christ. Open your word to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13 is where we'll be taking our text. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It stands to reason, if you are thinking logically, a person who is deceived doesn't even know that he is misled. They don't even understand that they are misunderstanding or that their own heart has betrayed them. He is deceived and blind to that fact. When it comes to sin, Jeremiah told the people of Israel in chapter 17, verse 9, and this is a a very telling verse. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It doesn't say the heart is one of those things that is deceitful. It says the heart is above all things deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it was said of the Lord, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is that verse implying? It's implying that man is desperately wicked, and Christ knew this. He understood what these people were looking for. But they were deceived in their own hearts by their own sin. But the reality was that they were looking to satisfy their flesh, their hunger, They weren't moved by Christ's words. They weren't moved by his works. They wanted to be satisfied. And Christ knew that. A few years ago, uh, from this pulpit in 2017 to be exact, March 5th, uh, Brother Aaron Dunlop preached a message from our passage this morning that we just read. I don't remember if you, uh, I don't know if you remember that, but he approached this passage from the historical illustration given in this passage of the Israelites in their wilderness uh, wanderings and their journey. Their wilderness journey was almost in its entirety a provocation or rebellion against the Lord. Here was a generation of God's ancient people who for hundreds of years cried out to God from Egypt cried out for a deliverer. There were uh, an entire nation of slaves, possibly up to three million by some estimates, all in bondage to, to taskmasters that were cruel and murderous. Many generations prayed for a deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. And although they prayed by the time that the Lord sent a deliverer, they were not only in Egypt, but Egypt was inside them. Yahweh sent to deliver Moses, and he led them out of bondage. I like the way the old authorized version says, the Lord took them out of bondage with a strong arm. He used wonders and miracles 
to bring them out of this land. And here was uh, a generation of Israelites <clears throat> that saw the sea part open right before their eyes. Here was the gener- uh, generation of, of Israelites that saw Moses stretch out his hand over the sea. And the Lord, it says, swept the sea back by a strong east wind. And all night long it, the wind blew and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. I remember as a little child just sitting in wonder at that miracle, that God would part the seas and make the, the land dry. A little further down that chapter, in chapter 14 in Exodus, it says, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. The Lord took them out of bondage with a strong arm. This generation saw this with their own eyes. This generation also saw the Lord miraculously provide food and water. Yahweh defeated their, the, uh, their enemies, armies that came out before them. And they were, there were other miracles that the Lord provided for them. And at the hand of the Lord was on their side. Each and every time, though, it seemed they provoked the Lord with their unbelief and their complaint. It was the, the everyday um, grind the everyday cares of the world that defeated this people. They were used to Egypt, a land that had all, as the Bible says, all the leeks and the garlics. You know, they were a a pampered people, really, even though they were slaves. They had Egypt in them. And so they had a difficult time. You know what? They're... they're, um, problem was with Moses. God's leadership. If you study any of the Old Testament narratives in this generation, their problem was with Moses. And if you study the, these narratives, they didn't trust his leadership. They didn't like his wife. You remember that? They didn't like the one he married. They used his sister to rebel against him. They made his brother Aaron create a golden image to falsely worship the Lord. In their distrust of Moses and his leadership and rebellion against that leadership, they were really in rebellion against the Lord and didn't believe Yahweh. How do we know that? Because what Moses was preaching from the Lord was never united by faith in those who heard. Look at chapter 4 in Hebrews there. Chapter 4. If you look down in verse 2, it says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe God. They had no faith, and so they were unbelieving and disobedient. So in chapter 3, verse 12, what's he really warning us of? Take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away 
from the living God. Here's a, an interesting word, falls away. It's the, the Greek word, ephistemi, meaning to depart, to remove oneself, to desert, to be a deserter, to fall away. A transliteration of the word is apostasy, a falling away from what is truth. Personal apostasy is what the writer of Hebrews is warning against, but he's using an Old Testament psalm of corporate worship that warned against corporate apostasy. He is quoting the 95th Psalm. We read that this morning. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, and they tried me, though they had seen all my work. The psalmist used this example of the wilderness wanderings a thousand years or more prior to his own generation. He is warning to the generations of Israelites that followed. Did you know that the 95th Psalm uh, was one of the songs that they sang almost every Sabbath day as they came to worship? When they came to the tabernacle, the 95th Psalm was one of those songs that they sang in worship. Almost every Sabbath, I would imagine, they sang this psalm. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. This was their song for corporate worship. Singing it nearly every Sabbath as they gathered at the tabernacle in David's time. And later on, at the great temple when they would gather during Sol- after Solomon had built the temple, this was the psalm of worship they sang. But it was also a psalm of warning. It's actually called the psalm of worship and obedience. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker, for he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. A song of worship and a song of warning, of obedience. They had this warning throughout all their generations, and it was preached to them over and over. So the warning was to the people who came to worship Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia, Generation after generation, God's people sang this song. Why? Because of man's sinfulness and the deceitfulness of sin. The New Testament writer in Hebrews here takes up this warning for the Christian generations to hear and to take heed to. It comes down through the ages to warn this generation, warning for us on the Lord's day, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I guess if there's one thing that I want to convey to us today, that it's, uh, it's that deception is the tool that is used against us in our desire to walk with the Lord. By nature, we are bent toward this hardening. By nature. The enemy of our soul knows this and thus uses the world and our flesh against us in this struggle. And so by nature, we struggle against sin's deception 
but we may also be deceived by nurture. And that's what happened to generations of Israelites, God's people, and it happens to generations of Christians. By nurture, not only by nature, but by nurture, we struggle against sin's deception, but we may also be deceived. Every Lord's Day we come to this place to hear the Word of God. Preached. We're instructed, is given from His Word. Its purpose is to cultivate us in the love of Christ. Its purpose is to nurture us in the faith. But there's also the danger of nurturing a hardening of the heart. How is that? It happens when we come in here only out of some sense of duty. Some kind of obligation, maybe to our family or to a friend. To keep up appearances. It's a danger. It's a deceiving. It's a nurturing, the hardening of the heart. The word of God is not mixed with faith when we come for any other reason than to worship our God and to meet with our God and to hear from God. If we're in here for any other reason, it's in vain. And so verse 13 says, Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we're not coming here to meet with God, to glorify his name and praise and open our minds and hearts to the scriptures, then we're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In our men's prayer meeting on Saturdays, we've, um, Saturday morning, we've been reading the book Thriving in Grace by uh, Pastor Joel Beeking, which is subtitled 12 Ways the Puritans Fuel Spiritual Growth. Pastor mentioned it this morning. These 12 ways are discussed and we are learning how they thrived in their walk with the Lord, how they thrived in grace. And as we, you read the, the Puritans, you understand, if you've read any kind of uh, Puritan book or, or uh, uh, studied any of them, you see that they uh, are just filled with Scripture, filled with the love for God and the uh, emphasis is on the exaltation of Christ on almost every page that you read. We're, re- we're reading this book by Pastor Beeking, and the third chapter is called The Sinfulness of Sin. And it gives us examples of how Puritans thrived in grace by emphasizing the sinfulness of sin or the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, the other day somebody mentioned the Valley of Vision I forget where it was, but they mentioned the Valley of Vision and how it just moves them every time they read that because it's so filled with Scripture and the realization of how needy we are in Christ because of our sin. And so in chapter 3, the sinfulness of sin, um, the Puritans, we're taught that the Puritans had a steady diet of contemplating how dreadfully sinful we are. We are with a purpose, of course, seeing how needy we are of salvation. And so the writer of Hebrew puts his finger on the reason for this hardening of the heart as the deceitfulness of sin. So the question needs to be asked, do we really understand and know how terrible our sin is? Or do we we think that we're 
you know, we're, we're okay. You know, I've been a Christian a long time, you know. I'm okay. No. There needs to be a constant understanding of our sin before God. As I said at the beginning of this message, a person who is deceived does not even know that he's being misled. They're blind. His, complete, his thinking is going down a completely wrong path. Pastor Beakey relates this story in the book. In 1665, the, the bubonic plague hit the city of London with a terrible blow. The epidemic is believed to have been caused by infected rats and fleas from those rats. In less than two years, the plague killed about 100,000 people, which was about a quarter of the population of London at the time. So you can imagine the horrible scene there. You've read books about it, maybe, how they, people would put their dead out on their stoop and wagons would come by and take the dead out of the city every day. They would burn them outside the city. And so the smell of that burning, the smell of death was horrible. So this was a horrible plague. There was a pastor in London at that time by the name of Ralph Venning, who at the time had been writing this book and was working on it when the the plague struck London. But due to this calamity, the book was not published until four years later. Having just gone through a terrible time of sickness and death from the epidemic, he named his literary work, Sin, the Plague of Plagues, with the subtitle called The Sinfulness of Sin. Of course, it didn't deal with the great plague of London, but it was a treatise on the plague, the great plague of the human heart, the plague of sin that has infected all of Adam's race. From the Garden of Eden until now, this plague has always been fatal. For the wages of sin is death. For the remainder of of the morning, I'd like to just briefly go over an introductory of this literary literary work by Pastor Venning to help us to see just what a plague sin is to us and to see the true nature of sin. The first thing he discusses is the deceitfulness of sin and the sinfulness of sin is totally contrary to God. And there's so much in that introductory that there's no no reason to go on in this sermon. There's no time to begin with. But let me just quote what he says here. Sin is enmity itself. Sinners are called the enemies of God in Romans 5 and Colossians 1. The carnal mind or sinful mind is said to be hostile to God in Romans chapter 8. Accordingly, there are acts of hostility such as walking contrary to God from Leviticus 26, rebelling against God from Isaiah chapter 1, rising up against him as an enemy, Micah 2, fighting and contending with God in Isaiah 45, and despising God, Numbers 11.20. It calls men haters of God, Romans 1, resistors of God from Acts chapter 7, Fighters against God in Acts chapter 5 and chapter 23. 
even blasphemers of God, and those who say there is no God, Psalm 14. It goes about to ungod God, end quote. Decidium, an ancient commentator said this, quote, sinners are God murderers or God killers, end quote. Sin is contrary to God. Let me just give you a few points that Ralph Venning gives as to why sin is contrary to God himself. Number one, sin is contrary to the nature of God. God's name is holy, and so is he in his nature. He is all holiness. In his essence, he is all goodness. Therefore, God takes it bad when men would think that he is wicked like themselves. There's a passage in Psalm 50, verse 19 through 20, uh, through 21. It's a sobering passage that calls out the blasphemy of thinking God is just like us. Psalm, the psalmist writes, You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You even slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. And you thought that I was just like you. How can a mind be so deceived into thinking that God is just like man? Yet mythology is just that. It's a practice of ancient charlatans who would deceive people for power and money. These priestly counterfeits would create gods just as wicked as they were. Sin is contrary to the nature of God. Number two, sin rebels against the names and attributes of God. There are six ways in which sin rebels against the attributes of God. Number one, it deposes the sovereignty of God. Sin deposes the sovereignty of God. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is this God? Who is this Lord? Sinners dethrone the sovereign God by defying his will. Secondly, it denies God's all-sufficiency. We would take our vanity and pleasure and thus claim that God is not sufficient to satisfy my needs, nor bring contentment. The prodigal son thought that his father's house and his father's riches were not enough to satisfy And he left. He fell away from the Father. Sin denies God's all-sufficiency. Thirdly, sin challenges the justice of God. God's justice is blinding and terrifying. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The prophet Malachi asked this question. Will you provoke the Lord to wrath and and jealousy? Sin challenges the justice of God. Fourthly, sin disowns his omniscience. It disowns his omniscience. By our sin, we tell ourselves that God doesn't see. And if he does see, he really doesn't regard it. Now, we would never say that out loud, and we may not even think that, but our transgression of the law says that plainly. 
Sin disowns the omniscience of God. Fifthly, it it despises the goodness of God. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God's goodness is why we are not swiftly cast into eternal damnation. It despises the goodness of God. Sixthly, it turns his grace into license. Jude chapter 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out by this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sin rebels against the attributes of God. Sin turns his grace into license. Well, we can go on. On The third thing that tells us that sin is contrary to God, sin is contrary to the works of God. All of God's works in creation are good and beautiful. How many of you have ever heard of uh, or listened to John MacArthur's series on creation? You ever had a chance to listen to those? If, if you haven't, they are really outstanding. But he explains how God created the cosmos. The cosmos is a universe of complexity and order. But sin is contrary to the works of God. The cosmos are, are a, vast, a vast system that God put in place, first of all, for his glory. He put it in place to display his wonders. And man is without excuse before God just by the glory of his creation. Romans tells us that. He also created the cosmos for the good of man and for the good of all his creation. Psalm 19, the, the great psalm that David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Sin came in, though, and instead of adding to the cosmos, it took away the beauty and goodness and brought confusion and chaos. God created the cosmos. Satan and sin brought in chaos. And so... Satan has deceived man into worshiping the creation, not the creator. Right now, in this generation, we're seeing another evil spirit of confusion advancing, aren't we? What a terrible, deceiving advancement of confusion in our day. God created orderliness. God created unity. God created a vast system of the cosmos that is to his glory. And it's wonderful and it's, it's for our good. But the confusion that is in our day is a pernicious evil that is destroying men and women, even little children, where men think that they are women and women think that they are men. What confusion. Worst of all, this has become the priority agenda among those who have authority and power in government. This destructive sin is contrary to the works of God and his creation. Fourthly, sin is contrary to the law and will of God. Sin is not only a transgression of the law, but it is a contradiction to the will of God. 
Listen to what Vinning writes, quote, When the Son of God came into the world to declare and to do His Father's will, He was encountered by and underwent the contradiction of sinners. In Hebrews chapter 12, Who would have made men believe that neither He nor His doctrine was of God? Sin is an anti-will, an anti-will to God's will. It sets itself to oppose preaching, to oppose prayer, to oppose all the institutions of God. And it does this not only out of envy to man, that he should not be the better for them, but out of enmity to God, that he should not be worshipped in the world. End quote. Sin is contrary to the law and the will of God. Jesus called the most religious man in Israel a generation of snakes, a brood or a nest of vipers. Why did he do this? Because they set themselves up against the law of God and the will of God. They placed their traditions as the standard of goodness and righteousness. Sin is contrary to the law and the will of God. And these Jewish leaders set up their own standard of righteousness against the will of God. So sin is contrary to the law and will of God. Fifthly, sin is contrary to the image of God. It's contrary to the image of God. God made man in the likeness of his own image, which God pronounced good and righteous. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it says this, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and in holiness of the truth. Sin defies the image of God in man. It distorts and deforms God's image in his creation. Sin is contrary to the image of God. Seven, sin is contrary to the people of God. If God loves his people so as to not spare his only son... How much hate is there sent against that people who are blood-bought? Sin cascades its hatred, malice, spite, and its war against the chosen of God and would bring them down into misery and shame. Again, another quote from Pastor Venning. There's so much that we could say here, but we don't really have the time. But sin opposes God's people in every way. Lastly, sin sets itself against the glory of God. And let me quote Vinning one more time. Quote, sin endeavors to obstruct and hinder God's glory. It began this practice upon Adam and Eve and still carries on this trade among the children of men. Faith would give glory to God. So in order that men may not believe, sin employs the devil to blind their eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. Good men would do all they do to the glory of God, but sin will let them do nothing at all and is ever throwing one dead fly or another into their most precious boxes of ointment. Sin is so malicious that it will not only dis displease and dishonor God himself, but labors to defeat and frustrate the endeavors of all who attempt to do otherwise. If sin's desire might take place, there should not be a person or a thing by whom and by which God should be pleased or glorified. It gives out false reports of God and goodness, lays prejudices and rocks of offense, and stumbling in man's way that he may be out of love with all that is good. 
so desperately is it bent against the honor and glory of God. End quote. Sin sets itself against the glory of God. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't have the capacity to keep all these things in the forefront of my mind. It has to be a daily practice. There's no power in my flesh to see all of sin's deception. We need the Spirit's help. We need the Word of God. In closing, let me just look at some practical things here quickly. Just a few minutes. This warning is a corporate warning. And he writes, Take care, brethren, to encourage one another day after day. He is admonishing us to encourage one another. The word he uses here is parakleo, which is the same word that that describes the work of the Holy Spirit. We are to come alongside each other and encourage one another, lift each other up in our daily walk. Here's the practical thing to do. Let's walk aside each other and encourage one another. Lift each other up. Help each other along the way. There is a spirit of unity here to make sure that someone doesn't fall away from the Lord. This is how it's to be done. And it's to be done on purpose. This past Friday, three of us men met together for breakfast And I always come back from those little times together with like-minded men, happy and blessed and encouraged in my heart. Why? Because these men have the hope of Christ in them. And it's their desire to exude that and to help one another. We need to come alongside each other. As this word says, brethren, come alongside one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't have someone to come alongside you, to encourage you and to lift you up, then you pray for someone that you can be that paracleto for. You come alongside somebody and help them. Don't wait for somebody to come alongside you. Ask the Lord to give you somebody to keep from falling away. Secondly, remember that the writer is giving a warning for today, not tomorrow, not yesterday, not for a week from now. He's telling us to be concerned about right now. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Christian life is lived in the moment. Have you ever meditated on the three little word verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17? Paul tells the people there in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. He's really telling us that communion with Christ is moment by moment. Prayer is spontaneous throughout the day. We're not just supposed to pray in the morning, although we should or in the evening before we go to bed, or before the meal. We're to be in the moment with Christ day by day. Pray without ceasing. Confession is throughout the day without ceasing. Thanksgiving is moment by moment. This is, uh, us, we Christians are to live in the moment, and the Christian life is lived in the moment. Today, if you will hear his voice, 
Harden not your heart. Obey him. And lastly, here at Grace Covenant Church, we have a certain liturgy that we go through each Sunday. And by God's grace, its purpose is to abide, and our purpose is to abide by the regulative principle of worship. This by nature is routine and repetitive every week. Repetition due to our nature tends to give us opportunity to wander in our concentration. (laughs) Because we've been down this path over and over and over again, haven't we? Every Sunday. We practice the same liturgy. We worship God in a regulative way as his word regulates us. The elders here guard the music that we worship by. We guard fiercely this pulpit. And when it goes astray, we've got to understand that and know that so that it, this, the word of God is rightly divided from this pulpit. There are four of us here that have been here almost from the first day of the church opening its doors. It's myself, my wife, and Christina and Valerie. We've been here the longest. We've been here for, what, 36 years now? And we've been worshiping the same way since 1987. And I'm sure some of you that have come from churches and have been saved for a while, you've come from churches that practice the same thing week after week after week. And so there's a tendency, and I know that in my own flesh sometimes I I wonder, I wish we could make the service more exciting somehow, you know? Make the service a little more uh, palatable. You know, maybe we can fill the pews better if we do this or do that. You know, and, and it's a temptation. It really is, you know, because you come in and <laughs> we sing. But you know what? You have to keep your heart fresh before the Lord every day. That's why I say the Christian life is lived in the moment. So as individuals, we come together to worship corporately. What do we do practically? Well, we need to walk in here on Sunday prepared to meet with the Lord. We are here to enjoy fellowship with one another, but that is not our main purpose. Our main purpose is to come and commune with Christ, to worship our God, and to have the word open to us so that we can worship him and learn more about him and to be nurtured in the love of Christ. So we should strive as much as we can to not walk in here late. Walk in here absent-minded. We need to think about our fellow worshipers and how we should um, not be distracting to them as they worship. Think of what we are coming here to do and who we are worshiping. That's the practical thing to do. Always prepare your heart to receive the word of God. The generation of Israelites that saw, um, that did not make it to the promised land, it did not enter rest, that brought upon them the wrath of God, worshiped the same way every Sabbath, day in and day, week in and week out. And they were nurtured into the hardening of their hearts. Many of them were. And many of them never made it to the rest of God. That's a tragedy, huh? It's really a tragedy. 
So we need to prepare our hearts as we come in. And those are the practical things we should do. Well, I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We're going to transition into the communion table. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of his word.